We have had an amazing summer in the clean pages of the Bible as we've been learning and exploring these minor prophets. And uh, it's been really engaging for me. Uh, We've been building uh, what I'm calling the gallery of the minor prophets. And uh, it should, there it is. And you can see up there the, uh, the various minor prophets that we have dealt with so far. Ten of them so far, can you believe it? And so there's just, uh, just a couple of them left. Um, and one of the things I want to point out is the first nine prophets uh, are called pre-exilic. Uh, and they have mostly to do with judgment. Uh, you probably heard that as we went week to week. And then the last three, the final three minor prophets, are called post-exilic. They're after the exile that we've been talking about. And they're a whole lot more positive, we would say. Uh, We we heard that last week. Uh, And they talk, all of them, about restoration and hope. They're pointed toward the future of Israel. And there's just amazing things. And I think the one uh, that we're studying this weekend may be among the most uh, encouraging of all. Zechariah, uh, I would call a prophecy of hope and encouragement. And you're going to just hear a whole different tone. Uh, and it's not that there is no announcement of judgment. There is some of that in, the, in this uh, prophecy. Um, but it's an amazing uh, thing because Zechariah is quoted 40 different times in the New Testament. If you want a New Testament connection, we're there. Uh, it's just an amazing thing. Uh, The prophecy is obviously messianic, very messianic, and the focus uh, of Zechariah is on the rebuilding. It's first of all on the rebuilding of the temple, because that's what they've come to do, and that's what they're doing. But it also talks about the coming of Jesus, and that's actually going to be our scripture reading, the second coming of Jesus, and then the millennium, uh, the final picture of where everything's going. So it's moving across a vast amount of time. Now, when I say Zechariah, uh, you know, I told you a couple of months ago, if I say, now, Mary, we're supposed to ask, which one? Because there's five of them in, in the New Testament. With Zechariah, it's very much the same thing. We need to say, which, which Zechariah? Let me just throw it out to the crowd that is gathered here. Uh, how many of you th- would say you know how many Zechariahs there are in the Bible? Want to take a guess? Give me a bid. Two. Well, there are two, yeah. There's one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. There are 30 different Zechariahs in the Bible. So you you really need to know which one. And the ones we know we're most familiar with is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, we find in in the Gospel of Luke. And then this one, the, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah has an amazing name. His name means Yahweh has remembered. What a promise. What an incredible thing to speak just in his name to our heart. By the way, the name Zachary is a form of Zechariah. So if you know a Zach or a Zachary, this is the same name. 14 different times in scripture, it says that God remembered It's in the story that Pastor Ann has been bringing us uh, in our student messages. It says, and God remembered. He heard the agony of his people. And God remembered the covenant that he had made. God remembered the promise that he had made uh, to Abraham and Isaac uh, and Jacob. And so uh, remembering is really important. It's also something important for God's people. 
Uh, but God remembers his promises to his people. Uh, and after this terrible time of exile, it's going to come to 70 years before they're actually really getting back. They were gone 50 years, and then they started coming back. So there's this long, long time, and Zechariah is communicating hope from the Lord, the heart of the Lord, uh, in this time, even after that terrible exile. Uh, in a short way, we could just say, God has not forgotten. How many of you had some good news? Because I don't know about you, but I, I talk to people, and, and so many times they may not say it with exactly those words, but in so many ways they're saying, I feel like God has forgotten me. God has not forgotten you. And especially for those of us who are born again and the Spirit of God is in us, God is in you. God's not going to forget you. So if you don't get anything else, be sure and get that. So let me remind you of where we are in Scripture uh, you remember that we had a divided kingdom. The north was scattered, and then the south was sent into exile. That's the short way to explain it. And now 50,000 Jews have returned from the exile, led by a guy named Zerubbabel. And you remember about Zerubbabel. Uh, when he got there, there was nothing but Rubbabel. Okay. So he's coming, he's coming back. He's going to be the governor. He's the governor, and he leads them, and he's bringing them back to rebuild and restore the temple. That was a huge task. And there weren't that many people who even remembered what it was like at the time. So restoring the temple was, was an enormous thing. And by the way, 50,000 sounds like a lot of people. I mean, that's a, that's a big, that's a good stadium, you know, full. There were about a million Jews in exile. So this is like 5%. This is not that many that came back. Most stayed behind, at least initially, and came later. They said, hey, we got houses, we're, we're, we have businesses, we're here, we're doing okay, we don't think we want to go back. So they're restoring the temple, and they stopped after just a couple years for 16 years. You know, can you imagine a, a construction project that you were responsible for, and it stopped? Nothing is going on for 16 years, and that's where we are Zechariah joins the guy that we talked about last week, Haggai. Say Haggai. And, and he joins Haggai to stir up the people and to get them working on things again. So I want to read to us, not from the beginning and not the very end, but kind of a little past the middle from Zechariah 9. It's going to sound really familiar to you. And, um, and I want to just tell you a little bit that uh, there's 14 chapters in Zechariah. Uh, one other uh, has that many, it's Hosea, and we could call it a longer minor prophet, okay? Or you could even call it a major minor prophet, which is a little bit like saying jumbo shrimp, okay? That, that's the preacher joke. Preacher jokes are kind of like dad jokes, okay? But that's, that's, that's where we are. It's one of the long ones, and so we have a lot. We won't, we won't dig in on all of it, but it's amazing for us to hear. Uh, we're going to begin with verse 9 of chapter 9, and uh, let's just tune in and hear God's word in this amazing passage of Scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now let's stand and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing prophet and this incredible prophecy. Speak to us in ways that we, that we can hear clearly exactly what you need for us to know, what you need for us to respond to. Each one of us you have brought to this place with purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. The prophet uses a phrase that is just so very unusual, prisoner of hope. You prisoners of hope. And it's even hard for the different translators. Some, some will translate it prisoners with hope. Uh, and it's often used that way. That prisoners, they're in prison, but, but they have hope. Well, certainly that's, that's true. But he's, and he's talking about those who have been in the exile. But what an amazing phrase it is because literally in, in the grammar of it, it is to be a prisoner of hope. As in like, you can't get away from it. And so hang on to that. Let's talk about Zechariah. He was born in the captivity of Babylon. He returned uh, from Babylon as a young child. So he was just a kid. He was born there. He came uh, when they began back, he came with Zerubbabel and that movement. He was in the first group uh, after the decree of Cyrus in 538. Uh, he was part of the 50,000 that came back. And so he, he grew up then from that point. The 18 years have gone by. I don't know how old he was. He might have been 10 when he came uh, out of the exile. And so now he's 28. He's a young guy. I mean, he's probably not a lot older than that, 28, maybe a little bit older than that. So he joins with Haggai. So Haggai was the old guy we talked about last week, and Zechariah is the young guy. Uh, Haggai was in his 70s, we know from the things that are described. He, he knew the temple. He had, he had seen all of those things. And, and Zechariah is the young guy. They prophesied at the very same time, and God raised them up to stir up this sort of apathetic project, this apathetic people. Now, it's amazing because they're very different from each other. They're at the same time, but they're very different. Haggai is sometimes described as a kick-in-the-pants preacher. Have you ever heard of one of those? Uh, uh, earlier today, uh, Pastor Ann was listening to uh, 
television, and I heard the preacher, and he was a kick-in-the-pants preacher. I mean, and he was saying really good things, but it's a different style, you know, to just really, he was cranking on, on the people. Um, Zechariah is different. We could call him a poetical mystic. He's so different, and his, his prophecy is much longer, um, and he is a lot more like Revelation. You remember when we studied through the whole book of Revelation, and we said he uses these apocalyptic images and, and, and very poetical at times, and all of that is something that transcends time and culture, and it's very powerful that way. What's amazing is, just don't miss this, God uses different styles. It's not anyone's style. You know, I'm shocked sometimes at how people divide over style. They say, well, I don't like that style of preaching. I just, I, that just doesn't, or, or I hate that style of preaching. I, oh, I only like this. And with worship and music, you know, I don't like that style of music. I love this style of music and it can only be this and it has to be this. And we divide over that. We need to be focused on the Lord. And, and I, I loved our, our worship because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Zechariah also is really different because he was a priest. He's the only prophet that also was a priest. Yeah, prophets, priests, and kings. This guy was, he, he was both of them. Now, he didn't practice that growing up. He was the grandson of uh, a priest named Edo. And say that with me, Edo. It's kind of, it's right there in the first verse. And, uh, and this made him familiar. He had been trained he had been trained in what it meant to do the things of the priesthood, to do the things of the temple, but he had never even seen the temple. He had heard all about it from the old people. <laughs> they remembered it, heard all about it from these uh, Zerubbabel and, and from his grandfather. So he comes back, and in about 520 B.C., I'll call him Zach, Zach begins. And Zach begins uh, with a call for the people of Judah to repent most every prophet is going to do that. It's so fundamental to our faith. It starts there. If you haven't repented, if you haven't repented pretty regularly, then you're not close to God. It simply means to turn back toward God. So he begins with that call. Then it's amazing. He has eight visions in one night, one restless night. He has eight visions and dreams and then he has four messages that he preached uh, a little bit later in the next year. And then some final messages. So this is like his whole preaching packet. <laughs> we have a whole lot from this Zechariah. Some call Zechariah a miniature book of Isaiah. Because you can't miss the coming of the Lord in it. You know, if you read the book of Isaiah, you go, this sounds like New Testament. Yeah, it does. There's a lot of Isaiah in the New Testament. Same thing with Zechariah. When I was reading the passage a little bit earlier, you probably thought, wow, what is it? Is this Palm Sunday? How, did, I, did I get beamed into a different time frame or something? Because that's, that's how it feels. I, I put an outline of his message in your notes. I'm not going to go over the whole outline, but we're going to get into a lot of it. His major, one of his major emphases is the sovereignty of God. Um, Zechariah uses the term, the Lord of hosts, 50 times. I mean, even in 14 chapters, that's a whole lot. In other words, he was constantly wanting to make sure we know this is the Lord of hosts. This isn't some ideas that are scribbled down on a parchment. 
This is God's word. That's why we honor God's word. That's why we stand and that's why we, we, uh, we focus and we listen. And I, I, I just have a rule in my life. I don't even like rules, but I don't interrupt God's word. So, and I, you know, I, that's just what I do. I, I'm not going to stop and I could explain things, but let's just let, it spe- let God speak. And he's very much that way. Chapter 14, verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. It's a huge statement of his sovereignty. So Zach, he began with this call to repentance. Uh, It's at the very beginning, first couple of verses. The Lord, and he says it this way, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, uh, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's making it really clear who's talking, and the call is to return to him. It's so basic and fundamental. Then we get into eight, these eight visions, uh, eight dreams, and they're all about rebuilding the temple in chapters one through eight. I'm going to bring them to you, but just very briefly to just say what they are. They're fascinating to dig into, and they do remind us very much of the book of Revelation. Uh, but all this is in one night. I don't know about you, but if, if, if I had one of these dreams, I'd feel pretty overwhelmed. But these are all in one night. So the first one is about a horseman among the myrtle trees, and the horseman is on a red horse. And we know that myrtle trees are evergreens and they're extremely hardy. It's hard to make them die. And it's an image of the nation of Israel. And he's among these evergreen trees that are a vision and an image of Israel. And he goes on and explains that the house will be built and there will be expansion. Uh, Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be a greatly expansive place. And that's very much fulfilled in this day. The second vision that he has on this night, he must have been tossing and turning, are four horns and four craftsmen. Horns in the Bible are a symbol of power and authority. The horns represent the nations that had scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem and and conquered. They they represent Assyria and Babylon. The four craftsmen are the mace or masons are the are the nations that God used to overthrow the oppressors and set them free and get them so that they're back coming back. The third vision is of a surveyor with a measuring line, Uh, and so this guy must have done some construction along the way, I think. But Israel will be a city without walls because of the great number that will be in it. Jerusalem is going to expand and it's going to grow. They're going to come from everywhere. Actually, we see that fulfilled in the last 50 years very, very much. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. The fourth vision that he has in this night he sees the priest, the high priest, whose name was Joshua, and he has, he has dirty, filthy garments on. And, and he's standing before an angel 
in these filthy garments, and then he's given a new garment, a new vestment that is pure and that is clean. His iniquity is taken away is the image and the symbol. Wow, that speaks of our New Testament. That speaks so much of what Jesus did for you. It speaks so much of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The fifth dream, the fifth vision is a gold lampstand and two olive trees. That sounds very familiar from the book of Revelation. But the lampstand has a bowl above it that constantly refills each of the branches. It's like a machine that is constantly supplying and the supply to the bowl is coming from the two olive trees. And then we find this verse. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He's the governor, the builder guy. Not by might, not by... Why don't you read that with me? That's so good. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It's not by how much wealth you have, Uh, Zerubbabel must have looked and said, we don't have enough to build this. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough uh, materials. We can't do this. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Wow. And, 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 And it's one of those verses. Boy, mark that. Take that one home. Not by your own strength. Not by your own wealth. We've talked about that a little bit before. And oil is the spirit but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you have the spirit of God, you got everything you need. There's not another thing that you need and he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. The sixth vision is of a flying scroll (laughs) and it has stuff written on it. Uh, Written on it was a curse that was going out across the land. Wow, Uh, the flying, I've heard a flying book, but flying scroll. But listen to what it is. It's against those who break the seventh and eighth commandments. Do not steal and do not bear false witness. Now, I don't know why he singled those out. They may have been really important at the time with this construction project going on. Don't lie about people and don't steal things. And and don't steal the reputation of someone by lying about them. But depend upon the spirit of the Lord and you'll have all that you need. And then the seventh one is really weird. If you don't think those are weird, it's a woman in a basket and it's a measuring basket. So it was an ephod basket. It was known to, have, to measure a specific amount and a measuring basket that is filled with the iniquity of the people throughout the land. So there's still iniquity, there's still sin. And, uh, and then it says very clearly, this wickedness would be set in place in Babylon. So Babylon's gonna receive this placement of iniquity, which is the bent towards sinning. And finally, there's a vision of four chariots. They're pulled by red, black, white, and dappled horses. Again, it feels a a bit like we fast forwarded into the book of Revelation. They represent the four spirits of heaven going out from the presence of the Lord uh, to the whole world. And they represent the wrath of God. This does speak of that day of the Lord in which the wrath of the Lord is being turned loose. Reminds us very much of Revelation. Wow. Say with me, wow. I mean, I'm tempted to say, you need to be more careful what you eat late at night. Now, these were from the Lord. And actually what's amazing is we know what they mean because there's an angel who interprets and, and says what this means. 
Now, chapters 9 through 14 are all about the coming of Messiah. And so it's, it's an amazing thing uh, to begin. I, I just read the passage, rejoice. It, it sounds like Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This was a prophecy that everybody knew was Messiah. So when Jesus sent some of his disciples and said, all right, I'm, I'm not going to come in the regular way. Uh, I want you to go up there into the, the, the next town, Bethphage, and, um, and you'll find a donkey there. And, uh, and then just bring it to me. And if they ask you, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> just say, the Lord needs it. I don't know about you, but I would be a little afraid I'd get arrested. And, uh, but that's what they did. And when they said, well, the Lord needs it, it was fine. So the Lord pre- prepared this situation so that he could come in and fulfill this prophecy. It's almost like he wanted to put a signature, oh, by the way, Jesus Messiah. And it's, it's really important because it's the, the place where he publicly welcomed or publicly presented himself as Messiah. Now, we know that kings actually rode donkeys. They rode donkeys in times of peace. And they rode a horse when they were coming in conquest. So it's a perfect image for Jesus coming in peace. The very next verse, listen to the mission once again. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Wow. I mean, this is gospels. This is just so gospel. He will rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And, and we get that image of, of swords being pounded into plowshares, this time of peace. And it's just amazing. We have more about Jesus. In chapter 11, he speaks of the rejection of Jesus. He describes that the flock detested me and I grew weary of them. I will not be your shepherd. Wow. The flock detested me. The rejection that happened when, when the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus. It says, I took my staff called favor and broke it. Now, I, wow, because that's the word for grace. We really don't want to have him break the staff called favor um, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. And it's describing what was happening right there in Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, it's all in our gospels. Give me my pay. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. There it is right there. And the Lord said, throw it to the potter. We know that Judas received 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. And then he was so disgusted with himself, he hurled them back into the temple. It was blood money. They didn't want anything to do with it. So they took it and they bought a potter's field. And so throw it to the potter. The prophecy of Judas and the betrayal of Christ in Matthew is all right here in the book of Zechariah. Chapters 12 through 14 We see that the enemies of Jerusalem are destroyed and Messiah is going to reign. Now listen to this. This really sounds like the end of Revelation. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem 
half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. That can only mean the Dead Sea filling up, if you've ever been there, and then the, out to the Mediterranean. It's, it's an amazing image. Um, it shall continue in, in summer as in winter. It doesn't matter what time of year. The, these living waters will flow. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Wow. That speaks so much to what we find in the heart of, uh, of Paul's teachings about unity, about being one in Christ. So what do we get from Zechariah? What are we supposed to get? Because, I mean, I love this, but I need to know what's it got for me. Anybody there? Yeah. So I want to give you just a few things. Number one, Yahweh remembers. You know, the the scripture in, in, in Hebrews says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm not going to forget you. He has not forgotten his promises. He's not forgotten his plans. When you read and declare and pray his promises, he doesn't forget. But he doesn't forget. He remembers. And he's not forgotten you. Most important thing. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know people that feel forgotten by God. God has not forgotten you. They're very, very difficult things. I mean, I've told you before, not a day goes by that I don't get another desperate prayer request. Pastor, can you pray my cousin or my sister-in-law or my friend is in ICU? And, and the, you know how that description goes. And we pray and pray. I've never been in a time where, you know, I, I start to feel bad about something in my life. And I go, wow, people have got real problems, don't they? Real problems. We just heard this week and we're praying for uh, the church that uh, our son Andrew uh, is a worship leader over in Tampa, Tampa and their, uh, their pastor's wife, did I fade out there? There, I'm back. The pastor's wife, her father died. He got it and in three days her, her father died and we're just so grieved for this pastor's wife, this young pastor's wife and, um, and the loss that they're experiencing in, in their family. Second thing that is that the re- return to the Lord, this call, and he will return to you. There's this mutuality. We, we have to respond. And I, I love the way that James says the same thing. James chapter four, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, I feel distant. Draw near to him. But I don't really feel like I'm close. Draw near to him. I've kind of drifted away. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. It's a promise in scripture. I see a lot of heads nodding. You know this to be true. And then what he says is, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You don't go double-minded. You know, well, I worship you kind of Jesus, but I have these other things that are really important that I'm pursuing. Uh, and, And we cleanse our hands. We cleanse our hearts before him. The third thing is, to work together. This verse is amazing. It's in chapter 10, uh, verse five, and it says, together they will be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle. I mean, you can just see the troopers, you know. They're trampling the muddy streets because the Lord is with them. Wow. They will fight and overthrow the horsemen. It's an amazing image. And so much is about together. It's that same verse that we looked at. 
Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You know, I was studying this and it reminded me of a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. It's so much of this one God emphasis because it talks about one body, one spirit, and one hope. Listen, as a prisoner for the Lord, this is another prisoner. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And we're described as prisoners of hope. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's my prayer every day. To live and interact and respond in a way that is worthy of the calling to which I have, that I have received. Listen to how he describes it. Be completely humble and gentle, fruit of the Spirit. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That means taking up burdens It actually kind of means putting up with each other in love. It's just body of Christ stuff. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And there's the hope. Zechariah and Haggai, they they work together. It's amazing. They were from different generations. I mean, you know, that can be difficult. And they, were, they had a different set of experiences. And one had different memories, remembered exactly the glory of the temple. The other, no, I've never seen it. They had different styles, completely different styles, but they were able to work together uh, in that kind of unity and together have that victory. The fourth thing is so very important. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Sometimes I, I, I talk to someone, they'll say, I've just kind of given up hope. No, don't do it. And I'm going to tell you really why you can't do it. Listen to this verse again. Return to your fortress. What, what's your fortress? A mighty fortress is our God. Uh, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. So that's where you need to be. It's the return to the Lord. Get into the Lord. And, and he's, he goes on, he says, Oh, prisoners of hope, uh, and even now I announce that I will restore twice as much. The things that you are discouraged about, I will restore twice as much. That's not prosperity theology, it's just Bible truth. That's what God's intention is. We are prisoners of hope. And hope, we're tempted to let go of hope. Hope won't let you go. I'm convinced that if the Lord is in you, He is not letting go. And he will stir up hope in you. You know, the the word for hope in Hebrew is one of my favorites. I don't know. I have so many favorites. And I know some people say, oh, you're just an old guy and you you just love Hebrew too much. But this is fabulous. It's the word tikvah. Say that with me. Tikvah. And it means rope. It means rope. So when you're hoping in the Lord and those who hope in the Lord, those who take hold of the rope, you got to take hold of it. And hope is what pulls you forward through whatever you're going through. I like to call it hope on a rope. It's not the same as soap on a rope. Okay. It actually, or it also can mean to be bound by twisting. I mean, you can just see, have, have you ever grabbed a heavy rope and you go, oh, this is not breaking. That's the hope, and the greatest of these is love, but faith, hope, and love. 
The greatest of these is love. So that's where we need to be. Those are the things that we need to hold in our hearts. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're honoring the God who remembers and calls us to remember. You know, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he said, I I don't want you to forget what this is about, so I'm going to give you a way to remember with, with the cup and with the bread. And I want you to remember how much it cost. How much it costs for us to be saved, to have hope in our lives, to take hold of that rope. So that's what we want to do. We, uh, we're going to join together. I hope you have the elements. If you don't have the elements, there's uh, someone back here who will, if you just raise your hand, they'll bring them to you. Everybody, everybody seems to have the elements, okay? Do you need them? Okay. They should be out there in the, in the lobby. Let's just pray. Father God, I thank you that you are the God of hope, that you plant hope in us at the moment of our salvation. And in the most difficult of times, you pull us forward as we cling to that rope. And God, we pray that as we connect here, that you would hear our confession of our sin, that you would hear our failings as we, as we bring them to you. And, uh, and that you, as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us in this communing time. In Jesus' name. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me take and receive and know that he is good father god we thank you that at just the right time when we were desperately lost you died for us We rejoice in that truth and in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so very blessed to share in these moments. And uh, let's stand as we get ready to go. If you are here for the first time, we'd love to meet you. I'll be over at this table to your left where the lamp is lit. And uh, we'd love to get to know you and answer questions that you might have. Let us go forth in the name of the God of hope, the one who encourages us and draws us forward for the plans that he has for us and the future he holds for us. In Jesus' name, amen.